Welcome everyone to this month's BJJ podcast. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome to our first podcast of 2020 from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. As always, we would like to thank our readers and listeners for the comments and support we have received so far, as well as to our many authors and guest interviewers who have taken part. Over the upcoming year, we hope to build on the range of topics we covered last year with our continuing aim to improve the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish here at the journal for both you as our listeners and readers, as well as for our many authors. For this month's study, as you know, over the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we will cover a range of aspects for the chosen work, emphasizing the important points of how the study has been designed, as well as the key findings from the data and how these potentially fit into each of your day-to-day clinical practices. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight, should we say, into how the authors have developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their work. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Nick Johnson and Professor Joe Dias from the academic team of musculoskeletal surgery in Leicester to discuss their study entitled Prospective Investigation of the Relationship Between Dorsal Tilt, Carpal Malalignment and Capitate Shift in Distal Radial Fractures, which will be published in the January edition of the BJJ. Welcome both and a big thank you to both of you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thanks. So if we move straight onto the paper, as you nicely state, uh, carpal malalignment after a distal radial fracture occurs due to loss of volar tilt, with the relationship between the radiological parameters following a fracture and functional outcomes still very unclear in the literature. So the aim of your study was to investigate the magnitude of dorsal tilt that leads to carpal malalignment, whether reduction of that dorsal tilt corrects the malalignment, and which measure of malalignment is the most useful. So, Prof, if I could start with you, can you give our listeners a brief introduction to the paper and maybe some information on the large international Delphi study you discussed that looked at the important radiological parameters for distal radius fractures? Andrew, thank you very much for inviting us to present on this uh, paper. And it's good to be the first of this decade. Um, the um, Distal radius fractures are the commonest fractures that we see um, in in fracture clinics um, where the treatment is done in outpatients or in as an inpatient. Um, across, the, across the hospitals in England, there is a nine-fold variation in surgery or treatments offered to patients with distal radius fractures. This suggests that fracture displacement threshold at which we offer treatment in the UK reflects clinical preferences rather than an absolute agreed uh, threshold. In January of last year, we published the International Delphi Consensus Study, which captured 614 years of experience of 43 senior clinicians, both within the UK and internationally, trying to uh, investigate whether there was a consensus displacement threshold at which we would offer intervention. This uh, Delphi consensus um, established that three millimeters of shortening or a dorsal tilt of 10 degrees um, is the point at which most offered treatment. But three out of four of our experts also pointed out that although we were focusing in the Delphi uh, about the thresholds of displacement, that carpal malalignment may be an important additional factor which they take into consideration. Many colleagues, uh, and Nick will um, elaborate on this, but many colleagues over the years have observed the association, including uh, Margaret McQueen from Edinburgh and and the team there, 
um, between carpal malalignment and outcome uh, following a distal fracture, uh, distal radius fracture. However, there's very little information of carpal malalignment per se, because we are focusing on how the distal radius looks rather than how the carpus overall sits after a distal radius fracture. And this is what led us to investigate um, more on carpal malalignment. That's great, Prof. Thank you very much. That's a very interesting um, summary of the of the Delphi study that was performed. So if I move to you, Nick, so as we've already alluded to, what, what do we really already know about carpal malalignment and outcome for our patients? Well, actually, carpal malalignment was initially noted just over 100 years ago uh, in a paper from 1919 by Jian and Mouché that it caused wrist pain and instability. Following that, there is... There's little else in the literature about it, apart from there's a few papers in the 80s, actually one from Leicester from Prof Dias here, uh, that reported that carpal malalignment was related to dorsal tilt after a distal radius fracture. And there was a small series from Telesnik and Watson when they found that dorsal displacement of the longitudinal axis of the capitate in relation to the axis of the radius led to pain and instability. But the interesting thing was they did corrective osteotomies for this and they found that the symptoms improved. It was only a small series, about 13 patients, but nevertheless, they had noted this. And as we've just mentioned, there was a Margaret McQueen RCT looking at four different treatment methods for distal radius fracture. And in that, they found that carpal malalignment was a major predictor of function following the distal radius fracture. And in our literature review for this paper, we actually only found seven papers which had investigated the importance of carpal malalignment. So the knowledge base about this is sparse. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because it's one of these things that you would think there'd be more out there, but there, there really isn't, is there? I know I agree. So Prof, I suppose with that in mind, what, what was the aim and hypothesis of your study and how did you hope to sort of address these limitations of the current literature with your, with your work? The, the previous papers, as uh, Nick has summarized, had observed or suggested an association between carpal malalignment and dorsal tilt, and had suggested this as an explanation for persistent pain or weakness, and hence gave that, a, gave that as an indication for a corrective osteotomy. However, we did not know the strength of the association. We did not know how best to evaluate it and whether the alignment or the change in alignment was restored after the tilt was corrected when we re reduce a fracture. We also don't know what the normal ranges of capitate shift were, either in, uh, uh, without a fracture or within an acceptably displaced fracture. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is what uh, led us to raise these set of questions and to pick up on one of the strands that came out of the Delphi study. That's great, Pastor. That's a great way to sort of summarize the aim of the, of the study. So if we sort of move on to how it was sort of performed and how it's put together, it was obviously a prospective study. It had 250 consecutive patients who had 250 fractures. They were 16 years and over. Uh, and they presented with a distal radius fracture to your service over roughly a four month period. So Prof, just for our listeners, can you give a brief overview of how the patients were identified and, and the inclusion exclusion criteria, uh, more, more importantly for the study? Um, that is quite simple, Andrew. Um, uh, this was an observational study, so we set out to define a cohort of adult patients 
as you've said, we had 250 um, participants and uh, with a distal radius fracture who presented to our hospital consecutively. And these 250 participants had 252 fractures. Um, most were docilely displaced, although it wasn't exclusive. Some of them were um, uh, Barton's fractures or Smith's fractures because we wanted a range of displacements uh, on which to check uh, carpal malalignment. We did not exclude patients as this was an observational study and it was based on radiographs taken for routine care. So therefore there were no exclusion criteria. So the whole set was consecutive. Excellent, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, I suppose moving on to, which is more the crux of the, the detail of the study is, with regards to the radiographic me measurements, what and how were, were collected and, and how was a form of, I suppose, quality control performed to ensure the accuracy of that? Because obviously that's such a key part of the, of the study. Um, we, firstly, we got the 576 <clears throat> sets of posterior, anterior and lateral radiographs of the injured wrist uh, taken before and after treatment. And we exported these into open access software called the Cirex, uh, which is commonly used and is easily available. But it has got a great set of measurement tools. Um, so it's used, uh, for instance, in, uh, in radiology research by our radiology teams. Um, for this particular study, we assessed four attributes. The first is we looked at fracture factors, for example, intra-articular extension, comminution, variance, <clears throat> and aspects that were not the primary focus of our assessment, but could be co-factors that changed our observations. For example, the position of the wrist was measured. So we knew whether the, the wrist x-ray, the lateral x-ray was taken in extension or flexion, which would alter uh, some of our measurements. The second thing we measured was the tilt of the distal radius. So we did all the usual measurements for uh, fracture assessment itself. The principal one being dorsal tilt. Um, the third set was to assess carpal malalignment, which we assessed on lateral, uh, lateral radiographs by measuring the tilt of the lunate on the radius in, in degrees, or the capitate on the lunate in degrees, uh, which are well described in the literature and we just followed the, their methods by defining the axis of the radius, the axis of each of these bones, and then measuring the angle between them. The capitate shift <clears throat> we then measured and we did this and we described it specifically because it has not been clearly described before. Uh, what we did was we firstly identified the center of the head of the capitate by putting a circle on the capitate head and, and therefore marking out the center. We defined the axis of the radius by using an axis tool within a syrix, uh, which is a reproducible tool to find out the axis of a bone. And then the perpendicular distance of the center of the capitate from the axis gave us the shift of the capitate from the axis of the radius. And this was negative if it was dorsal to the axis. Uh, <clears throat> we assess, the fourth element that we assessed was signs of other explanations for carpal malalignment, principally ligament injury. And we, and we use 
we assess this by measuring gaps between the scaphoid and lunate or between the lunate and plaquetrum and noting breaks in galula lines. Um, and those were all recorded. Um, as far as quality control goes, all these x-rays were measured by Rachel, <clears throat> checked by Rachel and finalized by Rachel. So that was the first, uh, our first author who did all the uh, hard graft of, of research, the police work type of stuff. Uh, then all the measurements were then checked by me. Um, each and every measurement was checked by me. The data was completed where there were tiny gaps. The signs were checked, the negative signs, positive signs were all checked. We looked at the outliers and confirmed or, or corrected the outliers. And then we came to the data lock. So the data uh, was then locked for analysis and no data was then changed after it was locked. And no analysis was conducted before the data was locked. Uh, the team had agreed our analysis plan before we completed collection of the data. Um, so I think that should give uh, our listeners an outline on how we collected the and, and checked on our data. Absolutely, but that was a that's really interesting. Actually, a really nice overview of the obviously quite a complex analysis was performed, but very very robust. Clearly, so Nick, if I come to you, you next. Obviously, the analysis performed in the study in terms of the statistical analysis are very nicely laid out. But for our listeners, could you give us a simple, concise overview of what was actually actually done? Yes, of course. I mean, initially we did some scatter plots, which showed a clear linear relationship between the different measures of carpal alignment and dorsal tilt. So we chose to use linear regression to assess the relationship. And for each measurement of carpal alignment, we created individual linear regression models uh, to assess the relationship with dorsal tilt. And we did that at three time points. So that was the initial radiograph. So that was the first x-ray after injury, basically. We did it, if they'd had a manipulation, we did it again following reduction and also the last available radiograph. And then we also did further regression models where we added in different variables, including age, gender, and wrist position to see how these affected the results. Separately, as you've heard, we also wanted to find out what was the actual normal value of capitate shift because no one knows that. It would be unethical to take radiographs of 50 normal wrists uh, so we weren't able to do that, but we had a series of patients who'd had a wrist x-ray for a possible injury, but were reported as completely normal. So we used a random sample of 50 of these patients and measured the captive shift on those, as you've heard, uh, to give us a normal sample. And then we also wanted to know what was captate shift likely to be within a population of patients who had a distal radius fracture that had been, been determined to be within an acceptable position. And we define that as a dorsal tilt of naught to 11 degrees. Okay. Yeah. And this was then used to determine the cut point. So we were looking at the capitate shift in that group and then to find a cut point of when dorsal tilt would lead to an abnormal capitate shift, shift in yeah. these patients with a wrist fracture. 
That's great. And we, we use rock curve, sorry, to analyze that. No, absolutely, Nick. That's, that's a really good summary because obviously there's a lot of analysis there, but I think that summarizes them really nicely and obviously moves on to the, the results of the study quite well. So just to reiterate for our listeners, obviously there was 252 fractures, as we've already said. Uh, the mean age was 58 years and just over 70% were female, which is very in keeping with the, the normal epidemiological data for these injuries. Um, as you've already said, Prof, over three quarters were a colleague's type dorsi dis displaced fracture and just over a quarter were intra-articular. And in terms of management, almost 88% were managed inoperatively. And also the, in terms of the quality of the gradiographs, which you graded, the vast majority were good, which about 92% with a small spattering of fair and, and only two cases they were poor, but all were included. So Prof, just to summarise, what do you feel the, the key findings of your study in terms of the results were in relation to the primary analysis performed to address your aims? Yeah, the, the two hands, the right and left hands were equally represented as well. Of course, yeah. Um, and um, the, the, the first important thing was that we were unable to identify significant ligament injury, which could explain carpal malalignment. Um, so then um, having excluded that as a cause of carpal malalignment, our key observations were that the capitate shifts dorsally as the distal radius tilts after a fracture, and that this shift is reversed by reducing the fracture. Mm -hmm. um, the mean capitate shift in, in our population was three millimeters dorsal to the axis of the distal radius. <clears throat> Although we measured radiolunate tilt and, and capitolunate tilt, in addition to the capitate shift to assess carpal malalignment, we found a weaker association of the angle measurements with the tilt than we found with capitate shift. Uh, we found that the mean tilt of the lunate in our population was 11, 11 degrees tilting back, and the capitate seems to compensate for this by tilting forward uh, seven degrees. Uh, so this raised the question of what capitate shift we may accept, and we addressed this, as Nick has pointed out, by defining a probable normal range of capitate shift in 50 wrists, uh, which had no evidence of bone or ligament injury. And we found that the normal capitate shift was two millimeters um, in front of the axis of the radius. And uh, uh, the range was from two millimeters behind the axis to seven millimeters in the front. And the mean was four millimeters in front of the axis. So the center of the capitate seems to line up with the palmar cortex of the distal radius, which is an easy visual clue without, in fact, doing measurements. Measurements, yeah. It is usual in clinical practice to be unconcerned if the dorsal tilt of the distal radius is at least zero. Um, and we start getting more and more concerned when it tilts back. So we looked at the capitate shift in a population, random, a separate population of uh, distal radius fractures, which were um, zero or palmar tilted, and therefore the normal acceptable range. And for these, um, the mean location of the capitate center was two millimeters in front of the axis of the radius. And the dorsal limit, the 95% confidence limit, was six millimeters behind the axis. And that is the one that we used as a cut point. As a cut point, yeah, absolutely. And with uh, Nick, sort of re with regards to the regression analysis and the ROC analysis, what did you find for those? Well, the regression analysis showed that all measures of carpal alignment 
were associated with dorsal tilt at each time point that we measured them. But it was very clear that capitate shift had the strongest relationship with dorsal tilt. So on the initial x-rays, the R-squared value for capitate shift in the regression calculation was 0.8, mm -hmm. perhaps compared to 0.27 for the capitolunate angle and 0.3 for the radiolunate angle. And it was similar values throughout. So on the final x-ray, the capitate shift R-squared was 0.65, whereas capitolunate was 0.09, radiolunate 0.18. And as I'm sure you've seen on the figures, uh, this can be clearly seen where the spread around the regression line uh, is quite tight for capitate shift. Mm -hmm. And then in the additional regression where we added in the other variables, capitate shift was the only parameter not affected by age or wrist position. Yeah. And our rock analysis showed that the cut point of dorsal tilt to maintain the capitate shift within the 99th percentile following a distal radius fracture was nine degrees of dorsal tilt. And this is interesting because it corresponds with what our Delphi panel said, uh, that that is the amount that most people would accept, nine degrees of dorsal tilt. Absolutely. It's, very, it's, it's remarkable how close that is, isn't it, really? And uh, as you said, those R-squared values are quite stark in terms of in relation to the capitate shift. It's a very interesting finding, I think, that. So if we move on to the implications of the work, I mean, I, I think the strengths are, without question, it's a very large prospective data set, um, very robust analysis performed. And I, I think without doubt, it's clearly provided us with very new and useful information regarding carpal alignment and distal radial fractures. You know, the analysis has been performed well, the radiological review has been performed blinded to outcome uh, and very sound overall. Uh, but what, what do you feel really the key findings of the work considering any potential limitations of the data? I mean, I would say the main thing we have done is we've confirmed that previous impression uh, that dorsal tilt is related to carpal malalignment. It had been hinted at, you know, people suggested it before, but this uh, clearly demonstrates that. We've also shown that if you correct the tilt by reducing the fracture well, then you will improve the alignment. In terms of the measures of carpal malalignment, we've shown that capitate shift is the best measure. It's got the strongest association at all time points and it's not related to the position of the wrist or the other variables such as gender or age. I think the paper is also useful because we've defined how to measure capitate shift. And as you've heard, it's quite a simple method. Uh, it's easy to do visually uh, and it will aid people clinically. The other parts of the study, we've attempted to establish the normal values of the capitate shift and the amount of tilt which can be accepted uh, to keep it within acceptable parameters. I suppose the main limitation is we don't have a true normal sample. Uh, but as we've said, ethically, that, that's very difficult to do at present. Yeah, I would, I would agree with all of that, Nick. I, I, really, uh, I think, it, like you say, it's impossible to get that data otherwise, but I think it's, it's been very nicely laid out. And like you say, a very relatively simple method to, to use. And, and in terms of the findings of the study, though, how do you feel they fit into the overall literature or the topic area uh, currently? I mean, I think a similar answer to the, the previous question, really. I mean, I think the main thing to me, though, is that we have actually confirmed the significant relationship between carpal malalignment and dorsal tilt. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And Prof, sort of 
probably just finishing up finally, what, what do you feel? I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting study and redefining it in some ways how, or maybe defining in some ways how we measure carpal alignment. What do you feel the implications are moving forward in terms of the measurements, but also for future studies in the distal radius? I think our focus over the last um, hundred odd years uh, has been on the alignment of the distal radius. And uh, this study will hopefully make doctors aware uh, that how the wrist changes after the fracture of the distal radius may have an impact. And that may be where our focus should be rather than just um, looking at the tilting of the distal radius. Um, and, and to understand that when, when the radius tilts, the carpal bones buckle. So a, a very subtle mechanism of stabilizing the wrist changes by changing the tilt of the distal radius. So the capitate shifts dorsally and load transmission across the wrist shifts backwards. Uh, we have shown how this can be easily assessed without needing to do any measurements. Um, uh, so doctors can um, just look at the image and say whether the center of the capitate lines up in front of the axis of the radius or at least is aligned with the palmar cortex of um, um, the um, radius on a lateral view. The aim of, of reducing a fracture should be to get the capitate aligned with the radius rather than to correct the tilt of the radius. So you're now suddenly thinking differently about the, about the distal radius. And when you assess whether it is stable or not, you're actually saying you've achieved um, restoration uh, of the best situation to transmit load across a broken wrist. Um, the study also establishes that the Delphi consensus of an acceptable tilt of 10 degrees dorsally would keep the capitate shift within acceptable limits. So I think all those are benefits and hopefully um, the outcome of this will be useful to clinicians treating uh, these common injuries. I'm sure it will, Prof. No, I totally agree. Well, both, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us and congratulations on a really excellent study that is without doubt an invaluable addition to the literature in this area. Thank you very much to, to both of you. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook and like. Feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us.